Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning for all the mercy that it represents simply that we're sitting here this morning and wanting to be here, wanting to hear your word and be fed and taught and rebuked and nourished and everything that we get by being here. Thank you. Help us, Father, as we look at your word, again, to think uh, as Christians, uh, not as modern Americans. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are uh, moving right along. So we've got, uh, what, how many more Sundays in November? Just three. Three? So I think Ben Salser's teaching next week, and then two more weeks after that, and we're done. On to something else. This, uh, the passage you're looking at this week uh, is chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 to 10. And this passage breaks down into three kind of main sections, all right? And he starts <clears throat> by giving instructions to slaves in the church. And then there's a, another section where he goes back to the false shepherds that he's been talking about all along and gives really the third and last, and you might say most pointed indictment against them and their teaching. And then he takes a thread from that indictment of the false teachers and, and pulls on it and goes into this intense warning about contentment and wanting to get rich. All right, so that's, where, that's the text for today. I'm gonna read it all and then we'll do it, deal with it as we go. So this is verse one, starting in verse one. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, the first section, verses one and two, deals with this very common situation in the world of the New Testament, the issue of slavery. Now, we are going to actually spend an, an uh, inordinate amount of time on these two verses compared to the rest of the passage, okay? And I'll explain why as we go. But this is, uh, we need to talk about the whole issue of slavery in the Bible. And I'll explain why that's important. 
the beginning, verses 1 and 2, he's addressing all who are under the yoke as slaves. So we need to back up and set the context of this, all right? It is very important for us to slow down and think about this issue of slavery in the Bible because here's what many secularists and unbelievers say to Christians today. Here's what they say. You claim that the Bible is the standard for morality, but the Bible condones slavery. Right? How can you trust the Bible for morals when it supports the wicked practice of slavery? All right, do you feel that? This is a very common attack on scripture today, all right? And it comes from both inside and outside the church. Um, and you need, we need to be equipped to think about that or else we will fold, we will just crumble before that. Because how do you argue against that? Well, I'm gonna tell you how you argue against it. But let's look at this. Um, so the question, if the Bible supports slavery, how can it be holy and righteous and good? Right? If, why didn't God abolish slavery? Why didn't the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy 6, who's he talking to? Well, those who are under the yoke of, as slaves, we're gonna see other places where he addresses the masters directly several times in his writings and Peter as well. Why didn't the apostle Paul just tell the Christian slave masters to free all their slaves? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? So here is some, do you feel the tension of that question, okay? And how do you, how do you, you know, you're, you're interacting with a neighbor, a coworker, a colleague, a student, whatever, and they bring this issue up, and let me tell you, they will bring this issue up. If you haven't heard it yet, it's because you're not talking to unbelievers. That's it. Because you will hear this issue, this question. And it feels like a slam dunk checkmate. And then what Christians tend to do at that point is, you know, start getting all wobbly about all kinds of things, all right? so. Here's some background that'll help you when you're confronted with this attack on scripture. Slavery was in fact a common institution both in the world of the Old Testament, uh, which we call the ancient Near East, okay, that whole world. Back in the time of the Old Testament, slavery was very common and in the New Testament in the Roman Empire. And the slavery that was practiced in the Old Testament, so let's deal with that first, right? The slavery that was practiced in Old Testament Israel was of two types. First of all, Hebrews could sell themselves to fellow Hebrews to pay off debt, all right? So you're a Hebrew, you live in the, in the land of Israel, you're a Jew, and you have incurred debt, and you can't pay it off, you know? Well, there is a system of, of what scripture calls slavery, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically sell myself into your service and I'm going to work it off. I'm going to work off the debt. Not by getting paid and giving you money, but by giving you labor. Okay? And these, here's some facts about 
this kind of slavery, okay? Um, first of all, these slaves were not the victims of the slave trade. Okay, man-stealing, man-stealing, kidnapping, man-stealing, right, uh, was, was a capital offense under God's law in the Old Testament, right? Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Okay, so when we think slavery, we think uh, American, you know, the early days of America and Europe, we think African slave trade, we think, the, you know, how did all those slaves come to, come to be in, in North America, in America? By this. Do you see that? And so fundamentally, the, the slavery that we all think and react to when we hear the word slavery, that, that visceral kind of uprising of disgust and horror and all of that, is right because it was founded on this kind of crime that was a capital crime. You go and, and raid a village and take everybody captive and then sell them, you are guilty of kidnapping or man-stealing, as the old word is, and you're worthy of, you, you deserve death, the death penalty. Okay, you all with me? So the slavery in the, New, in the Old Testament among the Hebrews was not that kind of thing, if it was, you see, I mean, this wouldn't make any sense. God forbids that kind of thing. The other thing to see is, another one, is that the, the, the kind of slavery where Hebrews could sell themselves to fellow Hebrews to pay off debt was highly regulated by God's law. Hebrew slaves were afforded all the benefits of justice that a free Hebrew enjoyed under the law. They weren't, um, they weren't subhuman. They were never regarded as people who didn't deserve full justice under God's law, all right? This kind of slave was required to go free after six years of service. He could only serve for six years. Seventh year, he had to go free. And they were not sent out by their masters empty-handed. Look at this, this is amazing. This is Deuteronomy 15. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. Right? Set him up. Not just with food for the moment, but with wealth. That's what flocks, you know, herds, animals would have been. And you shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you, that, I command you this today. It shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and a piece and pierce it through his ear into the door and he shall be your servant forever. All right, you'll pierce his ear. <clears throat> As a mark that he, he's, he's pledged himself to you forever. And you shall do likewise to your maidservant. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man, so the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. Now, do you, 
do you feel that kind of slavery? <clears throat> Nothing like what we think of when we think of American, African race-based chattel slavery. Do you understand? So don't let, don't let people make in your mind the moral equivalence between whatever this is talking about and what we all think of when we think slavery. Read the passage. It's not what it's talking about. Okay, you all with me? Just because it says slave doesn't mean what we think of when we think slavery in America. All right. Now, if these slaves escaped from their master's service, they decided to leave. What happened to them? What do you think? What do you think happens if a slave leaves his master in, under the Old Testament law and runs away? What happens to that slave? Anybody know? What do you th what do you th what do you think it would be? Come on, everybody. He's killed. Okay, someone says he's killed. What do you say? He's set free. You shall not hand over. This is Deuteronomy twenty-three. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. They didn't have a fugitive slave law. No fugitive slave act, right? Like we had in America. If, he's, if he escapes, if he leaves and he shows up on your doorstep, you're not allowed to turn him in. In fact, you have to give him a place to stay and let him go wherever he wants to go, okay? This is a highly regulated kind of thing that is not what we think of when we think slavery. All of that stands in stark contrast to the kind of slavery that was practiced among the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East. You know, God had to give these regulations for a reason. Slavery was very common, but it was nothing like this in the nations around Israel, all right? Now, the second kind of slaves that existed in Israel were not Hebrews, but captives from the surrounding nations. So in war, in the conquest of Canaan, whatever, uh, you know, Gentiles were, were brought in and uh, they were slaves. But the thing with that is that these slaves also enjoyed the benefit of God's law. For example, their Hebrew masters, the Jews, who had these slaves from the nations, were required to allow them a day of rest on the Sabbath. Totally unheard of anywhere else in the world. They were required by God's law to give them a day of rest on the Sabbath. And also God repeatedly commanded the Hebrews to treat these strangers and sojourners, right, the aliens among you, the, the people from outside the nation, to treat them well. Why, what's the rationale for that that God gives over and over again? Because you also once were slaves, sojourners, aliens, strangers in a strange land. So you treat them, the strangers in your land, the way you wanted to have been treated back then, right? Just the basic application of God's law, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, applies even to slaves, even to non-Hebrew slaves. All right, so that's the slavery in the Old Testament. And there are other passages you can read and we don't have, we're not gonna take the time to read them. And 
if you think about this, this principle, these ideas that I've shown you already, you can start making sense of the practice of slavery the way it was, was practiced and regulated in the Old Testament. Now the slavery we read about in the New Testament is very different because this is the slavery of the Roman Empire. Of course, the Roman Empire did not yet in any way follow God's laws, right? So a different kind of situation. And it's very important to realize how prevalent slavery was in the Roman world. Some estimates place the number of slaves in the city of Rome at the height of the empire, I guess you could say, uh, at up to 90% of the city's population were slaves. And clearly there were both good and bad masters. Uh, some slaves had it very hard especially those who worked in the field or in the mines simply because of the nature of their work, okay? It was no, no walk in the park, nothing, nothing great. It was bad. And of course, the, the slave masters could be bad and they weren't you know, controlled by the law of the land in, in that same way they would have been in, in, uh, in Israel. But many slaves in the Roman Empire enjoyed good lives and were actually well provided for, especially household slaves. Many slaves actually held high positions in wealthy households, okay? Tutors of children, the wealthy children of the household, tutors, um, professors, estate managers, bookkeepers, doctors, artisans. These were, you know, not living in chains in, in, in mud huts somewhere. These were slaves, but they were living in wealthy households and basically managing everything in Rome. And we, we see an example of a good slave master in the Gospel of Luke. Remember this story? This is in Luke 7. Sorry for the small text. I wanted to fit it all in one slide. It says, and a centurion's slave. So the centurion would have been a Roman high officer, hundred men under him, right? A centurion slave who was high re highly regarded by him. So wrap your mind around this. This is a, a slave master, a centurion, Roman soldier, has a slave, but the master highly regards the slave. Okay? Was sick and about to die, the slave. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So the centurion had built the synagogue in the city. And now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and commanded him to let that slave go. No. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. 
And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health, right? Healed from a distance. Do you feel this? This is a different kind of thing than we hear and feel when we hear slavery. The Bible promotes slavery. And we think the awful, illegal, immoral practice of African, you know, slaves being, men and women being stolen from their homes, sold and degraded. Does this sound like that? All right, the apostles Paul and Peter, they take slavery for granted. It was woven into the fabric of Roman society. Jesus took it for granted here. He didn't scold the centurion for having a slave. Clearly, this slave was well-treated and loved by the centurion. Their main concern, Peter and Paul, are the apostles that deal with this in the New Testament, is that Christian slaves see their situation as an opportunity, opportunity to serve and honor Jesus Christ, and that Christian slave masters, they were Christian slave masters, we see it here in this text as well, in, in 1 Timothy 6. Christian slave masters were to treat their slaves well as those who are themselves under our master, Jesus Christ. We'll see that in a second. Right? The slave master is always to remember he's, un, he's a slave as well with a master in heaven who's over him. And that's going to govern how he treats his slaves because he's going to give an account for that. So, look at this, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. God establishes authority, even this kind of authority, and you're to serve Christ by serving your master. Not by way of eye service as as men pleasers. That means doing what you're told when they're looking, but not when they're not looking, right? But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You're not gonna get off because you're the master and you get to you know, mistreat your slave. You have a master too. Colossians three, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Think about this. Not just doing the bare minimum that you know you have to do to get by, but with sincerity of heart, serving who? The Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without, without partiality. 
Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So that changes everything. If a slave master knows he has a master in heaven, it changes everything. If the slave knows that he also has a master in heaven, and by serving the master on earth, he's serving the master in heaven, that also changes everything. The whole dynamic changes. There's another one, Titus 2. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, <laughs> not stealing stuff, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Remember I said that was one of the two main things behind 1 Timothy? The one was the false teachers and the other was the reputation of the church. We have to live, everybody, at every level of society as Christians, has to live in such a way that the reputation of the church is built up and not torn down, the reputation of Christ. In this case, the reputation of the doctrine, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What do you th adorn means beautify, make attractive. Okay? Always very important. One last one, First Peter, not Paul, but Peter. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this point, but listen, we don't have slavery, right? We have a different system and we have employers and employees. But think about this, if these commands come to slaves and slave owners, how much more do these things apply to us who are employees and employers, you understand? In other words, it's a lot easier for us. You get to go home when you're done. You get to decide, nope, I'm done with that job. I'm gonna go get another job. Okay, and yet, so this has to shape the way we think about our work, our, our employers, if we're employees, and our employees, if we're employers. This has to shape everything. We don't, this doesn't just go away and have, is just an interesting his, uh, historical footnote for us. This applies to us. If it applied to them, how much more does it apply to us? How much more should we be now, our situation is much easier than theirs, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't, does not urge slaves to seek their freedom. And in none of these passages I've read to you do, does Paul or Peter say, do whatever you can. Run, uh, you know, rebel, have a slave revolt, you know, none of that. Uh, he does... Um, 
certainly allow them to seek freedom if the opportunity arises, but look at how much he just kind of brushes it off. This is 1 Corinthians 7. Were you called, that means did you become a Christian, right? Did you become a Christian while a slave? What's he say? Don't worry about it. That's not all he says, but that's the first thing he says. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't be obsessed with gaining your freedom. Now, if you're able also to become free, rather do that, that's okay. Not by disobeying all the commands he's given all the slaves already, right? Not by rebellion, not by violence, not by war. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the, in the Lord while a slave, who became a Christian while a slave, is the Lord's freedman. Whether he's a slave or not, he's free. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. <laughs> you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. That's what the New Testament says about slavery. Now, there's more. It's obvious that the spread of the Christian faith throughout Roman society, okay? Think of this. The spread of the Christian faith throughout Roman society carried with it the seeds of change which would end slavery from the bottom up. The most obvious example of that in the New Testament is the Christian slave Onesimus and his Christian master Philemon, right? The whole book of Philemon, that's what it's about, the letter. But here, let me just quote a little bit of this. This is starting in verse eight. You remember the story? Everyone, you all are deeply intimate with Philemon, right? That's where you always, yeah. Um, Paul is in, I can't remember where he is, Rome or something, and the slave evidently escapes from his master. The slave is Onesimus, the master is Philemon, and he becomes a Christian by hearing Paul. And then he becomes a good help to Paul, and then Paul says, you gotta go back to your master and make this right, okay? Look at what, look what he says. He's writing to the slave master, the Christian slave master. Therefore, as though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, Yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. The name Onesimus means useful. So he's kind of playing on words here. He was useless, but now he's useful again both to you and to me, I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, so that on your behalf he might minister to me, right? But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, if you regard me a partner, accept him as you would accept me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, right? You have my signature on this, right? I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me, you owe to me even your own self as well. (coughs) Yes, brother. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, (laughs) I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. You know, isn't that great? That's the way to write a letter. And so you see what I'm saying? The spread of Christianity, when slaves and slave masters both start becoming Christians, the whole thing ends up essentially going away, but not by rebellion or revolt. Now, here I have to address one thing real briefly. Um, This is another attack on, the, on scripture and on you and on everything that we believe that comes through this door, all right? So I just said that the New Testament carries within itself the seeds of change that would eventually end slavery. I believe that's true. Many liberal theologians and teachers turn that into a whole way of interpreting scripture that cancels out what God says about whom? Hmm? What do you say? Did you say something? No? Women, yes, and, and homosexuals. All right, there's a book that, has, that was very popular floating around in evangelical churches in, in Bloomington. It's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals by a guy named Webb. I can't remember the first name. All right. And the whole point of that book is promoting this thing called the trajectory hermeneutic. And so what I just said to you about slavery, which I think is right and biblical, that the teaching of the New Testament, when it, when it gets into the culture of the Roman Empire and these places that had slaves, the more it spreads, the more slavery becomes non-existent. Because these are my brothers. Okay? The whole thing, it starts changing from the bottom up. Now they take that idea and apply it to women and to homosexuals. And they say it's exactly the same thing. In other words, they claim that the condemnation of homosexuality was culturally bound, and so the Bible doesn't really you know, blow it up. It doesn't blow up the condemnation against homosexuality. It just kind of takes it for granted, just like the Bible kind of takes slavery for granted but it has within itself the teaching of the New Testament, the seeds of change that will ultimately liberate homosexuals into their, their freedom of being whoever God made them to be. Does that make sense? I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? All right. Um, same is true of women. That The Bible was written in a hopelessly patriarchal society, but the New Testament contains the seeds of change that would ultimately grow up into women's liberation, egalitarianism, and feminism. They just couldn't, they couldn't deal with it then, but given enough time, 
the trajectory, you understand? Given enough time, we would come to our senses and realize, oh, yeah, all along the Bible, you know, is a feminist document or a pro-homosexual document. We just didn't, they were too stupid and bound in their culture to realize it, but now, you know, we've all just kind of grown up. And the, their, their argument for that is the argument I just made about slavery. Okay? So how do we deal with that? Well, when Paul, think about this. When, when the Apostle Paul addresses slavery, he never supports it by appealing to God's permanent will. Never. He doesn't support it actually at all. He regulates it. He does support male headship Right by appealing to God's order of creation. We've seen that even in this book in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He appeals to Adam first, then Eve. He appeals to God's institution of marriage in the Garden of Eden, right, before the fall, and to the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. None of these things are culturally bound things. He goes all the way back to creation, Same thing with, um, well, so male headship and female submission and deference are not culturally created realities. They are ordained and instituted by God himself. They're unchangeable. And the same thing is true of homosexuality, right? He says here in 1 Timothy 1, that we saw way back at the beginning, that homosexuality is against God's moral law. It doesn't bring in the culture It's against God's moral law. He also says in other places it's against nature in Romans. The way God made things. So these are eternal realities. The way God made the world and his very law, which is a reflection of his own character and nature, right? So these are not, he's not appealing to these things as if they were temporary cultural, you know, institutions that would, he thought, change ultimately when the full flower of the gospel starts, you know, blossoming and taking root. Never, never do we have anything like that. Does that make sense? He doesn't do that with slavery. Now, so with all that background, let's see what he actually says. (laughs) And we're got to be done, essentially. Uh, So, here's what he says. All who are under the yoke, that doesn't sound pleasant, as slaves, are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. There's that word, third time it's used in 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 1 Timothy, once for widows, once for elders who rule well, right? Double honor. So, they're worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Always very important, as I've said. The the reputation and the honor of God. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren. Can you see how that would happen? So you're a slave and you become a Christian and your master becomes a Christian. And you start thinking, oh, you know, he's a Christian. I I can get by with things. I don't have to be all serious like that anymore. This happens all the time. 
by the way, with Christians and Christian employees. Some of you have Christians, are Christians, have Christian employees. And it's very easy for things to get, start getting sloppy and take, start taking um, liberties and, you know, not taking the contract seriously or the requirement seriously. Okay, that's exactly what he's talking about. Uh, don't be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Okay, so it doesn't, be, have, being a Christian under a Christian boss doesn't lessen the weight of that commitment. It actually increases it. Serve them all the more, not less, but more. Teach and preach these principles. Now let me just read <laughs> the rest. Is, are there any questions about any of this, I guess I should say? Give you the opportunity. Any clarification about the whole slave thing? Okay. Be ready for that. Be armed against it. That attack. All right. You know what? Okay, let me make one point. Look at this next section. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, what would you call that? What would you call it? What is he attacking? Is he attacking the doctrine? Sorta. But what else is he attacking? This is a classic ad hominem uh, argument. In other words, ad hominem means against the man himself, against the character. He is, I mean, intensely attacking the character of these men, not just the doctrine. These aren't his esteemed colleagues who, who, with whom I have a slight disagreement, okay? These men are conceited. And, uh, oh yeah, understands nothing. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that today in a theological debate? or even a political debate. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men. What kind of men? Of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Okay? This is the Apostle Paul. He's not just going for the details, the technical, you know, little intricacies of their arguments and stuff like that. He goes right to them. Okay. We got to be done. Um, maybe, is Ben in here? I don't see him. 
Well, Ben Salser is teaching next week, and maybe I'll just add this last section to his weight for next week. Let him deal with it. All right, we have to be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the way that it equips us, the fact that it is eternally true. Help us not to be shaken by the arguments and claims of wicked, rebellious men who are in fact conceited and who know nothing about you, about your word, about the gospel, about the way you've even just made the world. Help us to be able to withstand their attacks with strong faith and with confidence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.